Hello and welcome to episode three of the COVID Inquiry Spotlight Sessions. I'm Hannah Howard, an associate in the Business Crime and Compliance team, and I'm joined by fellow associates from the team, Hannah Frost and Alex Friston. We're also delighted to be joined by Anne Studd QC from Five Essex Court, who will provide her insight to the topics raised in this episode. In the last episode, we examined the importance of independence in an inquiry, and in this session, we'll consider what the COVID-19 inquiry might look like, what it will achieve, and what we know so far about those leading the inquiry. At the time of recording, the inquiry's terms of reference have not yet been published, so the exact scope of the investigation that the inquiry will undertake remains to be seen. However, as we await a formal announcement about how the UK COVID-19 inquiry will be structured, we thought it might be useful to compare the different approaches that have been adopted by other public inquiries to give us an insight into how the COVID-19 inquiry will be run. So taking inquiry structure as our starting point, Alex, what can we learn about how the COVID-19 inquiry will be structured from past inquiries? Thanks, Anna. Well, inquiry structures effectively are split into two main categories. Um, The first approach is commonly referred to as a modular approach. And what this is, is is generally effectively reserved for scenarios where the topics being investigated are sufficiently sort of discrete enough to allow different strands of an inquiry to be split and run separately from one another effectively. Each strand is then referred to as a module, and the modules are run as a series of smaller inquiries, and then each has sort of separate participants, and then each has discrete evidence to be heard as well. Sometimes two or more of these smaller inquiries can run simultaneously, but typically they are run quite separate. This modular approach does avoid the need for the participants to be involved in all elements of an inquiry, and it also allows them to take part only in the part or module that is relevant to them. The modular approach contrasts with the other approach where the topics the inquiry is investigating are interlinked to one another and therefore can't be easily or as easily or neatly separated. This so-called phased approach is similar to a modular approach in that an inquiry is usually divided into subsections that are referred to as phases. However, the key differences here are pretty much twofold. Number one, that phases are run sequentially as one long investigation, and number two, that participants are likely to remain involved at all stages. So Hannah, how do you think um, how do you think the structure of an inquiry will impact those involved? The structure of an inquiry can impact those involved um, hugely. Whether an inquiry chooses to take a modular or a phased approach will have considerable implications for any participant in terms of cost and time in particular. Taking the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse, for example, as an example. The scale and nature of the subject matter of that inquiry meant that a modular approach to the inquiry was appropriate. The inquiry, which is ongoing, is split into 15 modules, each dealing with different topics, different periods of time and or different locations, albeit with a common thematic link. Each module focuses on a different institution, for example, Rochdale Council, or a different topic, for example, child sexual exploitation or the internet. This modular approach allows those taking part in the inquiry to be involved only in the parts that are relevant to them. So participation is for a limited time and a party only receives and hears evidence relating to a specific topic. In terms of the impact that has on the core participants, this allows the disclosure process to be more streamlined and it follows that the time commitment involved in in reviewing that documentation is much more limited. That doesn't mean to say that a modular inquiry itself will be concluded more quickly than a phased inquiry as the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse was launched in 2014 and is only expected to conclude later in 2022. 
However, it does mean that reports and recommendations can be issued more frequently after the conclusion of each module, hoping to maintain momentum and public confidence because the public can see results coming through from the inquiry more regularly. Unlike the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse, the Grenfell Tower inquiry is being run as a single inquiry structured into two phases. Hannah, could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, of course. So the first phase of the Grenfell Tower inquiry looked into what happened on the night of the fire. And phase two, which is still currently underway, is investigating the underlying causes that led to the fire. Phase two of the Grenfell Tower inquiry is split down further into subtopics that are referred to as modules. The consequence of adopting a phased approach is that participants must be involved for longer and receive and hear all of the evidence called by the inquiry, even if it doesn't directly concern them. This increases the cost of taking part significantly and can draw the process out considerably, since all participants need to be kept informed of and involved with everything that happens at the inquiry. It also means that final reports and recommendations cannot come until the conclusion of all of the evidence, by which time the political landscape and opportunity for meaningful change may have altered. However, the Grenfell Tower Inquiry has taken steps to address that by issuing an interim report following the conclusion of Phase 1. The nature of the subject matter at the Grenfell Tower Inquiry is much less suited to a fully modular approach than the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse because it relates to one single event rather than multiple separate incidents separated by time and distance, albeit that they have a thematic link. In the Grenfell Tower Inquiry, it's desirable in the interests of fairness for all participants to be involved throughout, to give an opportunity to hear and challenge any relevant evidence that arises. So we've heard a bit about what the two approaches are, Alex, do you think that the COVID-19 inquiry will adopt a phased or a modular approach? Thanks, Hannah. I think it's a difficult question to answer, but at the moment it is appearing likely that the inquiry will adopt a modular approach. Um, The inquiry website has recently published an advertisement to recruit a legal team, and on that um, advertisement, it's revealed that it's envisaged there will be separate and individual inquiry modules. So read into that as you will. Um, whilst this is not considered to be you know, a formal announcement about the structure of the inquiry, um, it you know, almost certainly reflects the current thinking of the chair, Baroness Hallett. Um, adopting a fully modular approach and running a series of sort of smaller inquests with limited scope, you know, I think is definitely likely to make for you know a more effective and efficient inquiry experience, especially for the participants. Um, structuring the inquiry in this way would help, for example, to avoid a situation where you know a participant in the retail sector is subjected to you know large amounts of disclosure and evidence relating to let's just say the development of vaccines. Which, whilst this is relevant to the wider inquiry, perhaps it's not going to be strictly relevant to them. Given the um, the high level of public interest in the inquiry too, and the national and sort of levels of national and individual importance of the questions that need to be considered, efficiency alone, you know, it can't be the uh, the only driver behind any decision making as to how it's structured. We can see that some topics, such as the procurement of PPE, the management of the virus within care homes, and you know also the NHS response, are so interlinked that many participants will want to have, you know, or very likely want to have the opportunity to take part in every or multiple stages of the inquiry um, to subject the evidence to, you know, very appropriate and streamlined level of scrutiny. And this is a factor which would um, normally mitigate in favour of a phased um, rather than a modular approach to structure. So it's really interesting to see what we're going to get rather phased or modular. And um, obviously, we'll update people as, uh, as soon as that information comes available. 
So Hannah, what do we um, what do we know about the inquiry team so far for the upcoming inquiry? Yes, so we thought it'd be interesting as a, a final topic just to have a look through um, who has been appointed to the inquiry team so far. Um, and there's been a, a website set up recently for the COVID nineteen inquiry um, that we've got this information from. So just running through that really and just discussing it, we thought would be interesting. Um, so the website states that the inquiry will examine the UK's preparedness and response to the COVID nineteen pandemic with a view to learning lessons for the future. It also goes on to confirm that the inquiry chair, Baroness Hallett, um, will set out her vision for the inquiry's work in the coming months, which will include consulting the public on the terms of reference of the inquiry as soon as she has received a draft from the Prime Minister. This is encouraging to hear and a positive step towards ensuring that the terms of reference of the inquiry are robust and wide ranging enough to allow the inquiry to affect positive change. So I think that's a really welcome indication from the inquiry um, that the, the scope is going to be considered uh, widely and they're going to take views on it as well. So in terms of the people that have been appointed so far, if we start off with the inquiry chair, Dame Heather Hallett. So as chair of the inquiry, she'll be responsible for making procedural decisions, hearing evidence and making findings and recommendations. She has a very impressive CV indeed. She was called to the bar in 1972 and in 1989, she became a QC. She was the first woman to chair the bar council in 1998. And after becoming a presiding judge, she was promoted to the Court of Appeal in 2005. She was appointed vice president of the Court of Appeal Criminal Division in 2013. Dame Hallett retired from the Court of Appeal in 2019 and was made a crossbench life peer. As well as this, she has previously conducted a range of high-profile and complex inquests, inquiries and reviews, including acting as coroner for the inquests of the 56 people who died in the 7th of July 2005 London bombings. Dame Hallett's appointment to this role as inquiry chair follows a recommendation made by the Lord Chief Justice and seems to have been a welcome appointment across the board. Hannah, what do we know about the Director of Inquiry Setup? So the Director of Inquiry Setup is Ben Connor. Um, he is acting as the Inquiry Secretary during this setup phase and is responsible for the administration of the inquiry. He's a senior civil servant and his role is to act as the main contact between the inquiry and the Cabinet Office and has the really important job of helping to ensure that the chair and inquiry's work is independent from the government. Ben spent most of his career working within the Ministry of Justice and most recently has spent two months leading a Department for Education team embedded in the vaccine deployment programme, providing schools expertise when vaccine eligibility was extended to children. We also know that Hugo Keith QC has been appointed as counsel to the inquiry. As lead counsel, his role is to give independent legal advice to the chair, present the evidence, question the witnesses that are called, and lead the wider counsel team. Hugo's the joint head of chambers at three Raymond buildings and took silk in 2009. He represented the royal household in the inquest into the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, and was appointed leading counsel to the inquest into the London bombings of 7th of July 2005. He subsequently appeared in the Leveson inquiry and in the Mark Duggan, Alexander Litvinenko and Westminster inquests. He was going to be supported by solicitor to the inquiry. Alex, perhaps you could tell us about who that is. Absolutely, Hannah. So that'll be uh, Martin Smith. So Martin Smith as Solicitor Inquiry. Um, he's effectively responsible for advising the chair, uh, obtaining evidence, corresponding with core participants, and then also preparing for hearings. So Martin is a partner at Field Fisher, a law firm, and specialises in public law, uh, inquests, inquiries, and he's got a bit of a track record of advising um, those conducting sort of major public inquiries, inquests, and multiple other types of investigation too. 
Um, Martin has got a lot of experience. You know, he's acted as a solicitor to a number of important inquests, um, including the Hutton inquiry, um, the inquest into the death of Princess Diana uh, and Dodi Al-Fayed, um, the 7-7 London bombing inquests, Litvinenko inquiry, as, as, um, as Hannah stated, with um, Hugo Keith. Um, so just a you know, real wide range of, um, of inquiries and inquests. Now let's hear from Anstad QC. Well, the problem with inquiries of this size is that it would require an awful lot of work and time to be present throughout. And additionally to that, of course, a great deal of expense. So it's likely that the chair will divide it up into modules, much like the Grenville inquiry has been. And that means that those interested only have to pay attention to particular parts of the inquiry as a whole. So it means you can limit your involvement and make sure that you're just very up to speed with the parts that are going to affect you directly. I think any other system imposed by the chair in a case like this would be unworkable and extremely lengthy and beyond the financial capacity of most core participants. Okay. So your view is that it would be a modular approach rather than a phased approach such as that that we've seen for the Grenfell Tower inquiry. I think it will be modular. Well, modular in the sense that the phase two of the Grenville inquiry is a module. Okay. So they've done it phased, as in phase one and phase two. And she might do that because she might use the those people directly affected by it as a phase one. Yeah. So the bereaved survivors and relatives, for example. And then when she goes on to look at the other factors that she has to consider, she's likely to do that in a modular way. Okay. So the bit that will affect most of the people listening to this podcast will be modular. Okay, great. Thank you. We were discussing earlier about the importance of independence of an inquiry and impartiality. Do you have any thoughts as to the selection of the chair and the other parties that have been named so far in in terms of what impact they might have on the independence of the inquiry or how they're likely to approach that? I think so far as Dame Heather Hallett is concerned, I think most of those directly concerned will be pleased with her appointment. Uh, I did hear somebody in the Institute of Government not very long ago say, if only we could have a whole fleet of Heather Hallett. (laughs) (laughs) So so I don't think that, I think she is absolutely the right person. So far as independence is concerned, with some very few exceptions, most counsel to the inquiry and solicitors to the inquiry come at this sort of thing with a relatively open mind. And they go where the evidence takes them. Um, And Hugo Keith is very, very experienced Treasury counsel. I have no reason to think that he won't do that. Thank you. And we also discussed before about the sort of fluidity of the timetable. Yes. And on an inquiry of of this scale, what are your thoughts as to what people should be prepared for in terms of timescales changing, dates changing? Yes. Well, I think that that is a very relevant point because timetables do change. You have illness, for example. This is what we've been dealing with very regularly for the last two years. And so those who would have been giving evidence can't give evidence or the inquiry has to close because there's, as there has been this year, COVID within the inquiry building. Um, When they rearrange it, I'm afraid they have to rearrange it strictly because if they start taking into account people's availability, they'll never get the module through. So be aware that if they do have to rearrange, they're very likely 
to make it at what seems to you to be the most inconvenient. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for joining us for this spotlight session. In the next episode, we will be looking at the role of a core participant in a public inquiry. We hope you can join us. Thanks. Thanks.